CGM 99.1 FM programming is hosted almost exclusively by community volunteers. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are that of the host and their guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of CJAM FM. For more information and resources, visit our website at cjam.ca. Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on CJAM's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on CJAM 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. In this segment of our show, Mary Hogan will be telling us about SCA-27B. So what can you tell me about the foundation? Well, um, first let me say um, we represent um, a a subset of people who have ataxia. And um, ataxia is, it's a it's a condition that can mimic um, somebody who who is drunk, and so um, it affects the cerebellum of the brain. Um, and so, people with this condition have um, they're discoordinated. They may have slurred speech. Um, they may have uh, discoordination in their eyes, like jumpy eye movement, um, difficulty swallowing. Um, and my organization represents people with. SCA 27B, which is a subset of all, a very large group of different ataxias. Um, They're all rare. Um, I mean, they're very rare, um, but they kind of get clumped together as cerebellar ataxia. Um, My organization represents those with SCA 27B. Um, SCA stands for spinocerebellar ataxia. Um, and the 27B designation uh, was actually just um, made in January. So families who have had this form of ataxia have um, have been searching for a genetic cause of it. So um, in, in my particular family, um, this disease goes back hundreds of years that we can trace it. Many other families have been like that as well. Um, and have been looking for a genetic diagnosis um, for the disease. Um, And so my organization actually just was founded in May. Um, January is when the genetic test uh, revealed through research studies that 27B is is this new genetic disorder. Um, And then in April is when they could first start clinically testing patients for it. So we're very new, um, but we are a subset of, of, 
of ataxia. So we work quite a bit with the National Ataxia Foundation um, and others like that. So I'm curious, uh, isn't there an extreme risk, given the fact that it mimics intoxication, uh, isn't there a risk that someone wouldn't get the help that they might need if it's an on-the-spot incident? Someone misperceives it. Yeah, so I will tell you that there's a lot, lot of different things that happen with the way that it, it can mimic like being drunk. And uh, one of my uncles was actually like this, where he was fine to drive, but then when he would get out of the car, he was wobbly and looked like somebody who may have been driving drunk. Um, they now, doctors now actually present patients a lot with a card that says, this is the condition I have, um, and this is what it can look like um, for that sort of thing. Having a genetic diagnosis for this condition is huge. And so my organization and the, and the people who have this are coming from all over the world. And actually, Canada is um, the, the highest concentration of patients right now are in Quebec. Um, and Dr. Braze from McGill has done a lot of research and cares for a lot of patients in um, Montreal and Quebec um, that are the French Canadian population seems to have the highest percent of people with this condition. So how is your organization reaching out to those affected to let them know that there are supports that you can offer? So we, we, when we, um, we first uh, organized, we, we've been working with the National Taxia Foundation a good bit um, and going through a lot of their means. And when they, they do webinars or um, those sort of things, I attend, um, of which I was attending before, but now that we're trying to reach out specifically to those with um, the 27B designation, um, we're letting them know that they can come to us for uh, support. We do, um, we do, we have like a closed Facebook support group where people are now, that actually started with my family um, when we first found out uh, that we, you know, through a research study that my family carries the gene for, for this condition, um, we started a Facebook group within ourselves and we have been opening that up now and have members from Canada, all over Europe, uh, Australia, South America, and, and all across the United States um, that have this condition are able to support each other um, and uh, just learn more about the condition from each other. I've, I've also reached out to all the ataxia um, centers across the United States and, and the world um, and given them my contact information um, so that when they have a patient come in and they discover they have SCA 27B, they're able to give them my contact information for the organization um, and reach out to us. And, and um, we've been getting, getting a lot of contacts through that. I, I've actually, yesterday, there was a webinar through the National Taxia Foundation. And, and after that webinar, um, I've had quite a few contacts of people reaching out to me that saw the webinar um, and have been looking more into 27B and found our organization um, for support. 
So having a radio program like this is fantastic because one of the problems we have about reaching out is that um, people with ataxia know about ataxia, but people who don't have it, it's it's very foreign to them. Um, it's not something they're familiar with, and so when we try to reach out, sometimes we're we're not getting beyond the normal audience. Um, so that's something we're actually really working with um, is to try to do more educational promotion videos that reach outside of the ataxia community. Um, we're working with Bill Nye on this. He's actually a cousin of mine, and so we're working with Bill and uh, the National Ataxia Foundation to try to do some more promotional videos um, just to reach more people so that they're aware of the disease. So how can people go about finding out more about the work you're doing with Ataxia? Um, it would be great if you, you can log on to sca27b.org and that will bring you um, to our website and from there you will find the contact information where you can email us directly, you can call us directly and there's also a Facebook link where you can, uh, if you are part of a SEA 27B family, you can join or researcher, you can join in, in a closed uh, support group there. Like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Okay. In this segment of our show, Jeff Teeson will be giving us an update on his work with Parasport. So what's the latest with your work through Thrive and Parasport? Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of two, two different streams. There's some overlap at, at times, for sure, but... Uh, for me at, at Parasport, uh, I'm kind of wrapping up the, the role, uh, transitioning back to really uh, full time, officially full time with, with my publishing company and, and Thrive magazine that you mentioned that is for the amputee and uh, limb different uh, population in, in Canada. But interestingly, with uh, Parasport, um, in, in sort of the overall sector, uh, Ontario Trillium Foundation gave a sizable grant about five years ago, and it was two point five million, one of their one of their biggest, and it was to bring all the different stakeholders and players uh, from the provincial Parasport community together um, and and collaborate, <laughs> work together, and. You know, so many have a, a, a school program of their own, so, you know, sort of centralizing that a little bit. And a lot of really unique projects came came out of that, that funding to uh, push, obviously, inclusion, uh, recruitment and participation. A lot of research was done through Western and Queen's University. So they just wrapped up with uh, Ontario, and it was called The Collective. So the Ontario Parasport Collective just hosted a, a summit, a two-day summit in Toronto, and I'm sure a lot of information is going to be coming uh, to our our sector, the, the Parasport world, from that, and uh, I'll be writing uh, about that, doing an overview of, of the five-year impact um, on that. So... I'm curious, uh, when it comes to Thrive Magazine, uh, do you find that you have the opportunity to dispel some of the myths concerning those with a limb difference by sharing their real-life stories? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because the, 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 the magazine is, is for 
the amputee community. So we're, you know, singing to the choir, so to speak, but also for practitioners, prosthetists that make, make our limbs, orthotists that, that make braces for us as well. Then the allied healthcare industry. And we, we find that as much as the magazine is for amputees and those with limb difference, um, the practitioners are, are, are um, captivated with it because they are learning about us and our lives outside of the clinic. And I've talked to my prosthetist about it. And I, being a double arm amputee, wearing my prosthetics from morning till night, um, they take a beating. And I'm in the prosthetic clinic often enough for, for repairs. And, you know, if that's four hours a month, six hours a month, you know, as I was pointing out to him, it, the work that he does on me in those those hours affects all my other waking hours of my life. And sometimes the practitioners just don't understand how that work translates into us being independent, doing activities we want to do, uh, having good maintenance. I mean, when, when I have a prosthetic problem, that, that's a bad day. <laughs> that's worse than a bad air day. So... Um, yeah, we're getting readership from the periphery wanting to learn about uh, about our population. But we really don't take an approach of inspiration. It, it's more authenticity and, and real life uh, and, and how we uh, manage adversity, manage challenges, um, but, but live good lives as well. I like that. It's sort of reminiscent of one of the slides from my course design that entitled Disability is Not a Hat. It's not something you take off once you're out of the public eye or the doctor's office or what have you. It is a part of you, no matter what you do, where you go. Yeah, I, I, I can really relate to that. That, that certainly resonates. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's a wardrobe, not a hat. We, we wear it constant, constantly. And, you know, for some, it's, it, it, it impacts their identity more than, than others, but it um, it is it is who we are, and uh, you know it forces us to do things a little bit differently at, at times. And we've often talked about we you know we may look like we're we're struggling, but it's often we're not. It's just a, a different way of doing things with a, a prosthetic arm or a you know a, a, a lower limb prosthesis, and how folks may you know manage inclines and stairs and slippery surfaces in the winter. So um, I like that hat analogy, though. That's a good one, Ken. So, what are the next steps in your work uh, with both the magazine and uh, trying to keep things running in the parasport world? No pun intended. <laughs> That's good. Really good. Um, let's start with that, with that the parasport. So, where I will continue to um, be part of the parasport uh, community is publishing their magazine, which I've done for over 20, 25 years. It used to be an annual publication. It's, it's twice a year uh, now, and spring and summer, and then I fall and winter. So I'm, I'm happy to, to do that and, and bring good news, good Parasport news to, to the province across the province. And then with Thrive, uh, we're, we've been a three-time a year, which is kind of an odd publishing schedule. We're adding to that this year with Canada's first uh, resource guide. Uh, for the NPT community, and that will come out later this this fall. So that's going to take some time to to put uh, resources together, and you know, not just product 
books, but how to um, go back to work after you lose a limb or return home from rehab after you lose a limb. Um, you know, managing um, the different ways people may, may speak and interact with you. So it's got that kind of social, emotional uh, bent to it as well including uh, all, all the different products and, and adaptive devices that are available to us. So that's exciting stuff. A podcast is going to be part of that in our 2024 uh, lineup. Uh, we were fortunate to get a grant from Ontario Crates to, to support that. So we're really excited about bringing back some of the, the feature stories, uh, those that we've profiled, our, our cover guys and gals, to, um, to share their story again in, on a different medium. So busy year ahead, and uh, we're excited about that. Like, thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Thanks, Kim. Of course. Handy Link will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned. So you're hanging with your inner circle. Maybe you're making cocktails. Maybe you're packing bowls. Even while we're distancing, it's important to remember Alcohol and cannabis each mess with your driving skills. Be cool. Make sure you and your friends get home safe. Take a cab if you need to. A few bucks could save a life. And we could do it again next weekend. A message from Arrive Alive, Drive Sober. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, Mary Hogan told us a little bit about her work with Ataxia, and Jeff Thiessen gave us an update on his Parasport and publishing work. In this segment of our show, Aaron Pryor will be telling us a little bit about the NEC Society. So what can you tell me about the Society? Yeah, so uh, the next Society... Um spelled NEC Society, and NEC stands for Necrotizing Enterocolitis, which is a uh, gastrointestinal disease common in premature infants and also infants with um, some congenital heart defects. Um, it affects about somewhere up to 10%, anywhere from 3 to 10% of premature infants in the NICU. So um, it is somewhat, you know, again, of a, a common disease amongst preemies, and it's devastating. It is very tragic. It um, comes on very suddenly and has a mortality rate of up to 50%. So, and please continue. All right. So the next society was founded by Jennifer Canvasser, who lost her son, Micah, uh, to the disease. And um, when this happened to her and her family, uh, Micah was a twin. So um, when Micah passed just before his first birthday, after a very long struggle with neck and the complications that come with it, she um, realized that there was no information about NEC. She didn't know about NEC. There was um, no foundations or organizations that were advocating for NEC and raising awareness, and so she decided to start her own. And that was in 2014. And since then, um, she's met some other people that have had similar experiences. Erin Umberger is uh, also one of our directors who lost her daughter, Sarah, to NEC. And they um, have just built such an amazing organization where... 
um, we received we received funding and brought in um, additional people to work and advocate for basically disease research and education um, in the units and also with patient families. So um, I was hired just about two years ago as the research coordinator. Uh, where I really focus on the research aspect and we collaborate with um, scientists and physicians around the country that are all very passionate about advocating for this disease. So is there ever a risk of misdiagnosis? Uh, you had alluded to the fact that some of the symptoms might not be readily identifiable. Correct. So we neck is a very interesting disease. We don't know what causes it. There are no biomarkers. There's really no warning um, that's, you know, very blatant and outright that we know when it's coming. We know a little bit about what can help reduce the risk, um, breast milk um, being one. And um, there's some uh, other things that are, are a little bit less sure in the, in the literature, such as antibiotic stewardship and making sure, you know, we do the best with giving the babies the antibiotics that they need or don't need and the length of time that they're on the antibiotics. Um, and then there's also, you know, other tools that we use as um, monitoring the symptoms. So maybe it's gastrointestinal distension, maybe it's... Um, blood in their stools, maybe it's uh, apnea and bradia or things that are related to just the overall assessment of the baby. Um, we do know that the, the parents who are with the infants, you know, the most and know their babies the most can tell when their babies aren't feeling uncomfortable. But it's really just, a, you know, a lot of a, a generalized group of symptoms that may or may not mean that necrotizing enterocolitis is going to happen. So, when it does happen, though, it, it progresses very quickly, so, and it causes tissue death in the gastrointestinal system, um, where sometimes it can be managed medically, and it can be managed with just bowel rest and um, parenteral nutrition, but other times, infants have to go to surgery, and that's when part of their bowel that has been affected needs to be removed, and sometimes it's multiple surgeries um, to really let you know that bowel rest and heal. Um, and as they go forward, they can also develop other complications. It affects, it can affect the brain, it can affect the kidneys, it can affect the liver because you're on long-term parenteral nutrition. So it really is a devastating disease um, that comes on very quickly. And we're still looking to, to find more information about how to reduce the risk, prevent it, and treat it. So in your time with the organization, have you seen any success moments or steps forward in the research that stand out for you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We were working every day. And when I started with the organization two years ago, I was just amazed at how um, Jennifer has, you know, really uh, brought together the leading researchers in, in the field. Um, we're all working together. We have a scientific advisory council that meets once a month. And they have varying degrees of expertise. We have basic scientists that are working at the cellular level. We have quality improvement experts that are working more with clinical projects where, um, you know, we're looking at neck prevention strategies and what works and what doesn't work. Um, and a hot topic right now is actually uh, probiotics. We have um, really dug into the literature on probiotics use in the NICU um, over the last couple of years, and we have um, some very promising results um, and benefits to help reduce neck. However, there is no FDA-approved product. So that's presented some challenges for us recently um, it's been in the news that, you know, there are risks associated with using probiotics. As with any treatment in the NICU, there are risks, and we have to really do a good job of um, 
weighing the risks and benefits of any treatment. So there's definitely been progression. I think um, probiotics comes to mind just because it's, you know, it's a hot topic right now. And I think it has showed, showed promise, but we're continuing to really work on um, the cellular level as well with our basic scientists and really trying to find biomarkers um, that could possibly tell us if NEC is going to occur, which I think will be, will be a big, big breakthrough if we can find those biomarkers. We do uh, support a biorepository, which is, I think we're up to nine centers across the country. And the biorepository uh, specific for NEC is when we um, look at tissues and analyze them in a multiple, you know, different ways. Um, and that's what we're looking for is those biomarkers. And we take tissue samples and other samples of infants that have had NEC and also infants of similar um, age and, and size uh, that didn't have NEC as a control. And we use that information um, to try to study it again before it occurs. So if you could send any message to the community about the need to keep pushing forward in research and what you'd like to see happen, what would you say? Um, I would I would say just keep talking to our entire community. We need to keep raising awareness. We need to keep educating about the disease. One of the tragedies, I think, when neck hits in the NICU is that many parents don't even know what it is. And we need to do a better job, I think, as an organization and a community really um, talking about it. It's scary, and we know there is a balance of, um, you know, teaching and educating and also not scaring, you know, families who are going through an early birth or maybe a high-risk pregnancy, but um, knowledge is power, and I feel like if we as a whole organization and community can do a better job of, of teaching and talking and using everyone, we have so many disciplines that work in NICUs, from nursing to social workers to occupational therapists to dietitians, pharmacists. Um, we all should be talking about it. We are all affected by it. Um, and parents obviously need to know, you know, what their risks are. And when you're thrusted into the NICU world, um, you're, you're not prepared. You don't, this isn't what you expected. You know, you don't plan for a NICU stay. Typically it happens because there's been an emergency with during birth. And um, that's where I think we need to do a better job of, of before birth, you know, during pregnancy, and also after of just raising awareness and talking about it. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. My friends, I'm just going to come out and say it. There needs to be better education concerning certain types of conditions. Things like ataxia that can mimic the appearance of being intoxicated can be a very dangerous thing. And so much as having a card that indicates you have this condition is all well and good. However, proper training is a must. If it's local law enforcement, they need to know that this card is valid and that it means this person has a legitimate condition. If it's a medical responder, they need to know how best to help this person should the condition become more extreme. We can't just go around making the worst-case scenario assumption. Some cases, yes, you might run across someone who is actually intoxicated. However, a first glance is not always the correct one. And so much as people are living with very real conditions. Do we only have sympathy or respect for those whose conditions we can readily quantify? If it's beyond our experience, does that make it any less real? Years ago, people didn't consider mental health concerns to be a valid thing. 
to this day, we're still struggling and trying to get those doors open. But the fact is, they must be opened. Something like ataxia that can mimic the symptoms of something else is no less real than walking around with a prosthesis or uh, any sort of difference in the way we move, communicate, see, hear, or think. The truth of the matter is, society at large has a form of disability, in the form of keeping a closed mind. That's something we can deal with. The cure is very, very simple. All we have to do is look upon our fellow human beings with a little bit of respect and understanding. And if someone says, this is my condition, it is a part of who I am, we should try to respect and understand that. Not be the ones who just say, that person's out of it, we should just stay away from them. We should be there as a source of support. But we shouldn't jump to any conclusions. There are those living with disabilities who get along just fine in their own way and in their own right. And if they say, I can open this door fine by myself, we must accept that. If they ask for help, or they look like they actually need it, it's fine to ask that question. But respect comes first and foremost. No matter what, be what they need you to be. Don't just go off assuming this is something they made up or something that needs to be coddled or overprotected. These are human beings with strength, dignity, hope, all their own. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal. So get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.